Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are so good to us. We thank you that you're better than anything this life has to offer. You're better than any man-made religion. You're better than any ideology. You're better than any entertainment. You're better than anything we could come up with. And so, Lord, as you've penned these words so long ago, they're now relevant to us even today. And so, Lord, today, if we hear your voice, help us to be obedient. And have your way with us now, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Lord willing, we'll read 4 and 5. And now you know why I say Lord willing at the beginning of service, right? If you were here last week, I said Lord willing, we do 3 and 4. Lord and my wife were not willing that we did 3 and 4. So we did 3. Actually, it's just right. She's always in tune with the Lord. Hebrews chapter 4. When you're there, say there. All right. So we've been talking for the last uh, three chapters in the book of Hebrews that uh, this book was written to Hebrew Christians in the first century. And so when we say they're written to Hebrew Christians, that's very important to keep in the forefront of our thinking. And that is because we all live in a cultural context, right? And the Hebrew Christians in the first century lived in a very specific cultural context. And that is, they were by genealogy, by tradition, by upbringing, by culture, by community, they were Jewish. But by personal faith, they came to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so they became, therefore, Christians, right? And so they were Christians, and, if, and we know the Bible, you know, we have the Bible as well, like they did, to some extent. But we understand that if we're Christians, Jesus is all we need, Okay? that we don't add good works to what Jesus did on the cross. Now, with any doctrine, you can, and I'm reading a book right now that kind of brings this out, and I'll talk more about it probably as the weeks come by. But with any doctrine, you can, take, you can swing too far one way or the other. Does that make sense? And so we can say, you know, Jesus is all we need. We're not saved by works, Right? James says works kind of gives evidence of the fact that we are saved and we believe in Jesus, right? If I, you know, I, I always say the example. If I tell you that I, th- I believe a uh, tornado's coming and I don't get out of here, right, then I didn't really believe that, right? But I'm not saved by the fact that, I, that I'm acting on my works. I'm saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Are we good with that concept? Okay. Well, the Jewish Christians in the first century had tremendous social pressure. And I want us to catch this. 
because I think this is extremely relevant to us today. Extremely relevant. The Jewish Christians had this tremendous social pressure. Their friends, their family, everybody they knew, their community, their neighborhood, you name it, applied this pressure that, yeah, you can believe in Jesus. Just keep adhering to the Old Testament law and bring Jesus along with you. And what the writer of the Hebrews is making, the point he's making is any effort to do that actually is a move away from Jesus. Because we, we develop this attitude like we're, we're trying to, to add something to what Jesus has done. That sort of cheapens, in a sense, what, G, what Jesus has done for us. Does that make sense? Yeah. Very good so far. Okay, the day's still young. So we have this pressure that I would submit socially, culturally, to not necessarily stand biblically. Now, here's how I would describe it. I was thinking about this this morning. If we were alive in the leave it to beaver days, all right? Some of us were. My kids asked me last night, Dad, did you ever see a John Wayne movie in the theater? No. But anyway, if we lived in the leave it to beaver days, the father knows best days, the whatever days, you know, you know what I'm talking about. There was sort of, let's say, and let's say we we're Christians in those days. Let's say we we're biblical Christians. We're going to stand on the word of God, okay? Then it's kind of like I could be a biblical Christian here, and I could be like just a nice guy, like Ward, Right? Do we know if Ward, did you ever hear Ward preach the gospel on the, on the show? No. We don't know if Ward was a believer or not. But he kind of looked like one, acted like one, dressed like one. He was a minister? There you go. We still don't know. <laughs> okay. Here's my point. In those days, biblical Christianity and cultural norm and cultural Christianity all kind of looked pretty similar. Am I right? Now, where we're at today is cultural norm, the farther it gets away from biblical Christianity, the more glaring biblical Christianity is going to look. Okay? And there was a day when we could just kind of like yeah, you know, I believe in Jesus and I put up a Christmas tree and stuff like that. And now we're living, I believe, more and more in a time where if we're going to be biblical Christians, we're going to be biblical Christians. And in the same way that the Jewish Christians had pressure to comply socially, we're going to feel pressure to comply socially if we haven't already. We're going to have those awkward extended family conversations. We're going to have those awkward conversations in our workplace, in our neighborhood, in the political scene, wherever we go. And the question is, do we want to be nice and normal, maybe fun guy to be around, or do we want to be biblical? 
And we're in church, so the right answer is biblical. Tomorrow morning, the right answer still needs to be biblical, right? And that's the world we live in. And so in my mind, as I'm thinking through the message of the book of Hebrews, that is, Jesus is better than the Old Testament Jewish system. I'm here to say Jesus today is better than the cultural Christian system. Because here's what I say. Even as society goes farther away from biblical Christianity, there is becoming, and this is part of what my, you can always kind of tell what I'm, well, probably some of my kids can kind of tell maybe what books I'm reading lately, right? But I'm on a book right now that's got me a little bit fired up. But the, as society gets more and more, let's say, away from biblical Christianity, there's going to be a lot of Christians that frankly cave to that temptation. And what they're going to try to do is they're going to try to call themselves Christian but sort of straddle the fence between biblical Christianity and cultural norm, acceptance, all of that. And the farther that distance gets, the more difficult it is to straddle the fence. And sooner or later, it becomes no conviction at all. And I'm very, very burdened by this. Because I think we're going to see a lot of mainstream Christianity potentially experience lots of compromise. Now, why does that burden me? Because I believe we went through this last week in, in Hebrews chapter 3. We see as we kind of lay the groundwork. I'm still laying groundwork. Everybody okay with that? Okay. You, I'm giving you time to find Hebrews chapter 4. So last week we talked about in chapter 3 that there's this picture of the Jews in the desert, right? They came out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. They came uh, across the Red Sea. They came up into the, the Mount Sinai, and then it was time to go up into the Promised Land, and they sent 12 spies up into the Promised Land. You know the story. Uh, they came back. Ten of them said, oh, there's giants in the land. Forget it. Two of them said, no, let's take the land. Those two, the 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 community there of about 3 million people tried to kill them. They, they started to stone them to death, and Moses said, don't, don't do that. And so what happened is they failed to take God at his word and obey and simply obey what he said. He said, take the land. But they had pressure to not take the land, right? Giants, intimidating giants, Right? But where did they just come out of? Egypt. Egypt would have been intimidating, but they quickly forgot that, right? Do we quickly forget? Yeah, we quickly forget sometimes. But we still got to make, we got we to gotta bring ourselves back to the point of obedience. And so anyway, you know the story. They didn't obey. They said, forget it. They're going to kill us. And so what did God, so God allowed them to wander in the desert for 40 years, okay? And everybody, uh, I believe over 20 years of age, 
uh, in the camp at that time, except for Joshua and Caleb, the two spies that were faithful. Everybody 20 years and, eight and over died in the, in the wilderness. And they were led by Moses. Moses himself died in the wilderness. They were led by Moses. And then Joshua, uh, the guy that followed Moses, brought him into the promised land. And we talked about this last week. Moses is a picture of the Old Testament law, right? Moses couldn't bring him into the promised land. Joshua, the Hebrew name Joshua, the Greek translation is Jesus, okay? Joshua was able to bring the people into the promised land. And so we see these two pictures of the Christian life even today. Now, in the promised land, they had battles to fight, right? They, had, they made a couple mistakes that we read about in the book of Joshua. It wasn't perfect, but it was victorious, you get the idea? So it wasn't a picture of heaven. Some people say the promised land is a picture of heaven. It wasn't a picture of heaven. I believe it was a picture of abundant, victorious Christian life that's available on earth today to us. But there's also a picture of 40 years of walking around in circles. You cover a lot of ground in 40 years. You ever think about that? Surely somewhere or another, don't you think you just like stumble into the, oh, there's the Jordan River, let's cross it. Like, just dumb luck. But they didn't even do that, right? So they wander around for 40 years while everybody slowly dies off. By the way, what were they afraid of with those giants were going to do? Kill them. What happened in the desert for those 40 years? They died. Right? So we have a choice, I believe. I believe we have a very clear choice, the same choice that these, Hebrews, that these Hebrews, Hebrew Christians had to make. Do we stand on Jesus and do we obey his word or do we not? Now, those guys that died in the desert, were they still God's people? Yeah. Is it possible to live that, and different theologians argue about this, but I'm going to say this. Is it possible to live that lame, desert, Christian life and still squeak into heaven on a pass-fail test by the grace of God? I think it is. I think it is. Anybody want to do that? Like, you ever think about this? Like, I remember when I was a kid, when I was a young kid, and <clears throat> I didn't really, I was, I was trying to find that fence to straddle, right? We've all tried to straddle a fence at some point or another. I'm trying to find that fence to straddle, and I kept thinking, like, you know, I'd read a little bit, and I'd think, sounds like it's kind of a pass-fail test. I like pass-fail tests, right? Because that means I can get, like, a C-minus and still pass, Right? But the, the older I get, the more I'm like, who wants that life? That's pathetic. That's lame. And it's got a lot of baggage that goes along with it. And frankly, I see that baggage in people's lives over the years. I don't think we want that. So Jesus is better than Moses. Uh, we read earlier in the first part of the book, he re he's better than the prophets or the angels. He's better than any of the Old Testament system. Moses could only take the, the God's people so far. It was Joshua that was able to take them into the, uh, into the promised land. And today, if you're a Christian, but you feel like you're living in a desert, striving, frustrated, without victory, desiring some kind of spiritual rest, 
could it be that this is about obedience? It's about obedience. And let me just say this. It's about simple obedience, step by step, one little, one little integrity decision at a time. One little act of obedience at a time. Sometimes we think of obedience as like this great, this great thing I got to accomplish. It's really the sum total of a few decades of little things. Little integrity decisions. Little purity decisions. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. And so the rest that, that he's talking about in this, uh, in chapter, they started in chapter 3, was the rest of being in the promised land. Again, they had battles, they had stuff they had to do, but there's a certain rest when you know that God is doing the fighting for you, right? You read through the book of Joshua, right? You march around a, a walled city for seven days and then it falls down? And you're like, I didn't even get my hands dirty, right? That's the kind of rest he's talking about. You just, it, it's just like, and I hope we all can say, yeah, I've experienced that. I know what he's talking about. That when you, when, yes, you have challenges in life, but it just seems like God is doing that work. Like God is fighting our battles for us. That's the kind of, that, that's a spiritual kind of a rest. That's what he's talking about. And he said, let us fear lest you, lest any of you come short of it. You know, there's a healthy godly fear sometimes. And here you have it. Let us fear lest any of you become short of it, fall short of it. You know, Timothy tells us, or Paul told Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power of love and of a sound mind, right? And we know that perfect love casts out fear. But this is a different kind of fear. This is the kind of fear like, I don't want to mess up, right? Does that mean I'm saved by works? No. It just means I don't want that lame Christian life. I want to enter into his rest. I don't want to come short of whatever he would have, the best he would have for me today. The desire to enter into his rest and have fellowship with God Almighty, the creator of the world, should be our ultimate motivator in life. Not to be accepted or to be nice or to have people like us, right? Fellowship with God should be our motivator. For indeed, verse 2, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, meaning to the Jews in the desert. But the word which they heard, with, they, they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Now, we've hammered this uh, last couple weeks, and Nate certainly hammered it on Wednesday nights going through the book of Hebrews. Faith is not confidence. Faith is, what, what's faith? Obedience. Obedience. Heard a guy that shared this years ago. He said, you know, that last night of the Passover, right, when uh, God told the Jewish people, I want you to kill a Passover lamb at the doorstep and sprinkle its blood on the sides of the doors and on the roof or over the doorway. And I'm gonna and the death angel is gonna pass through. And any house that has that blood pattern, incidentally the shape of a cross, any house that has that blood pattern, I'm gonna pass over that house. Any house that does not have that blood pattern, uh, their firstborn will die. 
Now put yourself in that situation. You're a Jewish head of your house that, that night, right? You're like, kill a lamb? Are you kidding me? That doesn't make sense. Do we always understand what God is doing? Is that our business? No, not always. And so there would have been some that would have said, that's stupid. They would have been called unfaithful. There would be some, and I'm going to guess that I would be this one. Whatever. <laughs> right? I mean, would I, st would I be up there like with my family? All right, guys. I'm leading the charge in godliness. We're going to kill that lamb. We're going to like sing a song while we kill it. Right? We're going to make it. We're going to do some cool art and have a little dance with it. Am I going to do that? I'd probably be like, oh, well. You know what that's called? It's called faith. Right? It's called faith. It's not like how confident am I am that this is the right thing or that I know what God is doing or am I discerning the will of the Lord. It's about God said it and so I'll do it. That's faith. So these guys, he says, you know what? The gospel is preached. Those guys heard the, heard the word of the Lord, right? They saw Moses come down from the mountain. They knew the whole bit, right? They knew that God had spoken to them. And yet they didn't mix it with faith to go into the promised land when he told them to. What was that faith? It was obedience. And they didn't mix it with obedience to go into the promised land. And therefore, they did not enter that rest. For Verse 3, for we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. So, so the writer here draws this sort of parallel. On the seventh day, God rested, right? And in the same way, the the Jews, when they went into the promised land, they would, have, they would have rested. But the ones that died in the desert, they never entered that rest. And so we don't get to share in that rest if we still choose to disobey, even though we may be Christians. Notice it says, these works were finished from the foundation of the world. Can I tell you this? You're going to have some challenges this week. God's already taken care of it. The question is, do we believe that? Do we believe it enough to obey it? And sometimes, again, let me just say, it's the, it seems like the little things. It seems like the little things, but they add up. They're big. Verse 6, since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so, he's repeating what he mentioned, what he said several times in chapter 3. And that is, this, this today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, is a quote from Psalm 95, which the writer here ascribes to David. Okay? So, Psalm 95, so keep in mind, you've got to put the timeline in your head. All right? Everybody got a little timeline in your head? Okay? Moses and the guys deciding whether or not they're going to obey or, not, or disobey going into the promised land. That happened at a certain point in time, right? A few years later, 
Joshua leads the people into the promised land. Okay? Centuries later, David is writing Psalm 95. Okay? A few years later, the writer of Hebrews is writing Hebrews chapter 4. And a few years later, we're reading Hebrews chapter 4. Right? Got the timeline? Okay? And the point that the writer of Hebrews is making is that, you know, David wrote the word today. Right? We talked about this last week. When is it today? Today. today. Tomorrow, what are we going to call that day? We're going to call it today, yesterday, tomorrow. Tomorrow we're going to wake up and we're going to call it what? Today. Three Saturdays from now, we're going to wake up and we're going to call that day what? So on that day, if we hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Any day that's called today is a day that we would do well to obey the Lord. Any day that's called today is the day for us to obey. So it goes on, for if Joshua, verse 8, had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So you see this? Remember I said you got Moses, you got Joshua, you got David, you got the writer of Hebrews, and then you got us? Okay. David came before or after Joshua? After. So he says, if David writes about Joshua and says, or if, if David says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion, he wasn't talking about Joshua because Joshua was past tense at that point in time. And so he's saying, there must be more even victory, more victory than what Joshua could provide for those people. And so we have that to look forward to. That's the point that the, that the writer here is making. We can look forward to greater victory than even Joshua and the people experienced in the promised land. The promised land is a picture of that abundant life, but I think there's something more that's even available to us. Now, we know that to be heaven, but also perhaps even here on earth. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Our battles have been fought. We just get to live them out. Right? It's like the guy hits a home run. You know? Guy hits a, anybody watch baseball? Guy hits a home run, and he runs around the bases. Right? Now, when he runs around the bases, having already hit the home run into the upper decks, does he slide into home? Does he sweat much? He still goes through the motions, right? I don't know the rules. I'm guessing he has to touch every base. Is that right? Yeah. He could do it backwards as far as I'm concerned, right? Do moonwalk all the way around the bases. That's all right, right? But as long as he touches the bases, he doesn't care. He's not striving. He's not injuring himself. He's not working. He's not sweating. The work's been done. That's the spiritual rest that God is talking about. That, can, I, can I just encourage us people? Because the world doesn't tell us this. That is available today for each and every one of us. That is available today for each and every one of us. He says, let us therefore, verse 
11. Be diligent to enter that rest. Again, we've got to get this balance. We're not saved by works, but we do have to be diligent. We've got to be diligent. Chapter 2, verse 1. We've got to be diligent. We've got to take, give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. We've got to be diligent. Verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall short according to the same example of disobedience. You know what? If we're not diligent, we could wind ourse- find ourselves in that lame, desert, aimless life, though still Christian, but not the Christian life we want to live. And again, I believe with all my heart, in our day and age, we're going to see more and more and more of our Christian brothers and sisters living in that desert. I don't want that for any of us. I don't want that for me. I don't want that for my family. God wants more for, the, for us. He says, for the word of God is living and powerful. These are great verses. If you've got a pen and you're not morally opposed to it, these verses should be underlined in your Bible. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So the Bible, please catch this. It was a great day in my life when I learned this. And so let me tell us this today. This is not an encyclopedia. It's not a great resource, though it is, right? It's not just a history book, though it is. It's not just a lot of biographies, though it is. This book is living and powerful. This book speaks to our very core in a way that nothing else can. This book changes our lives in a way that nothing else can. It's not just the information. It's not just the print on the page. There is something supernatural about these words. Supernaturally alive about these words. I want us to catch this. This is not just good information. It's not just a resource. It's not a paperweight. It's the living Word of God. It's the means by which God has chosen to communicate to His people. And we should give it that degree of respect. Does that make sense? I heard a, uh, we went to a conference a couple weeks ago. I had a great uh, teaching that, that helped me with this. And the guy put up this on the screen. You know, human beings are made up of body, soul, and spirit, right? We're a kind of a trinity just like God is a trinity, Right? but different than God. We're we're not God, right? But we're body, soul, and spirit. Does that make sense? And so sometimes we, you know, 
we get kind of confused on this, uh, particularly the soul and spirit. I mean, we understand the difference between our emotions and our, and our sore ankle when we twist it, right? We get that. But there's an interesting thing. You know, when God told Adam and Eve, and this is the lesson that I learned in this conference, which was, I thought was very helpful. When God told Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of that fruit, you shall surely what? Die. Did they die that day physically? No. So what was God? So A, they died that day physically, and we like missed that paragraph. I don't think so. B, God lied. I don't think so. C, they died in a way that we don't always fully understand. I believe their spirit died. Right? When we receive Jesus into our hearts, right? says um, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. You who were dead in trespasses and sins, he made alive. Right? Well, when we were in our trespasses and sins, we, our hearts were pumping and our lungs were working and our brains sort of worked. Right? But when we receive Jesus into our lives... We're alive. Okay? And our spirit now is alive. As opposed to when Adam and Eve ate the fruit. Does that make sense? Here's the thing I think is important for us to discern. Sometimes we can experience Christian things. We can experience a good Christian music. Right? Does Christian music ever affect your emotions? Sure it does. Does that mean is there anything wrong with that? No. Unless we rely on that for our source of wisdom. Make sense? Hanging out with Christian brothers and sisters in, in a healthy community like this. Right? Does that help our mind? Yeah, gives us wisdom, right? Does it affect our personality? I'm nicer when I'm with you guys, right? Does it affect our emotions? I'm more fun when I'm with you guys, right? Being in Christian community does this, right? Let me just say this. Again, I've known a lot of people over the years. You say, well, tell me about the Lord. They'll say, oh, you ought to experience my church. We have a lot of fun together. We do stuff together. We think like-mindedly, and we're all nice to one another. You should experience my church, right? And then what happens? When persecution comes or hard times or, you know, something weird happens, guess what? The spirit hasn't been fed. Does that make sense? The emotions have been fed. Oh, we're all... Everybody feel warm and fuzzy here today? I'm warm and fuzzy. I'm very warm and fuzzy, right? Am I funny? Thank you. No, I'm sorry. That was up here, right? But catch this. Okay, so in light of all that, I want us to discern these, when we, when we experience Christian life, 
It affects us in all these ways. But look at this. The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. The Word of God is what feeds that spirit. The Word of God is what feeds that spirit. Warm fuzzies feed the soul. The Word of God feeds the spirit. The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You want to be a strong Christian? You want to be an abundant life, promised land Christian? You got to know and obey the Word of God, period. Period. I believe with all my heart that it is impossible to have an abundant life Christianity without knowing and obeying the Word of God. Period. And there's no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Now, here's where uh, we've talked, uh, Nate talked a lot, a lot about this on Wednesday nights, but the writer of the Hebrews kind of writes from an Eastern mindset. We, we read and think according to a Western mindset, which we think is, you know, point A and then point B and then point C, whereas he's more like painting a picture. So he's sometimes all over the place, okay? So we're going to let him move around a little bit. Is that all right? And we'll be a little bit Eastern. Uh, and so now he's jumping to this high priest idea, which he was talking about earlier. And the idea is the high priest was in the Jewish context. Again, these are all Jewish readers, the, the or Jewish Christians that are the readers. The high priest was the one who interceded between God and the people. And so the high priest was sort of the representative. And now he's making the point that Jesus is the ultimate high priest. He's better than any high priest, uh, better than Moses or, or Joshua or any of the uh, leaders uh, within the Jewish faith. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so the amazing thing is that even though Jesus was God, he became man and was tempted like us in every way and yet overcame temptation. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so we can therefore come boldly because of, all because of him into the throne of grace. chapter 5. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. And so the high priest to the Jewish person was the mediator to God. He was appointed by God. He was not elected by God. He was appointed in the, in the Old Testament Jewish law. Remember there were 12 tribes of Israel, right? 12 sons of Jacob. That, formed the, that they were the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those was Levi, right? And Levi's, I believe, grandson or great-grandson was Aaron, the brother of Moses. And God, in God's wisdom, kind of like, you know, kill the lamb. We don't know why necessarily. But God said, all the priests have to be descended of Aaron. And so uh, the high priests would have been Aaron's descendants, and they were appointed. They weren't elected. They were appointed. 
And so uh, the priest was a person who was subject to weakness, so he should have compassion on the people. And that applies to spiritual leaders today. Uh, But Jesus is able to be compassionate toward us because he was at all points tempted as we are. He goes on, because of this, he's required as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And so the Jewish high priest uh, had to offer sacrifices for themselves as well as for the people because they were all sinner. And so that was pretty straightforward to their mindset. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. And so it was a great sin to presume to be the priest. Uh, in the interest of time, I won't read it, but I'd refer you to Second Chronicles chapter 26. King Uzziah was not a descendant of Aaron. He was a descendant of David. Uh, so David would have been a descendant of the line of Judah, right? So King Uzziah was a descendant of the, of the line of Judah. Uh, he was not a priest. He was not through the line of Aaron, not through the line of Levi. And it says in King Uzziah's reign, he, like, you talk about God's rest, God's favor, God fighting our battles. Like, everything King Uzziah did was awesome. And it says, as long as he sought the Lord, he prospered in everything he did. I mean, he had, uh, you know, his military might, his, his uh, just everything. Everything he did prospered until he became strong. It says, but when he became strong, he got puffed up. And the biggest thing he did was he went into the temple and basically acted as the priest. Hey, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want, right? I live in America. I got freedom. I can do whatever I want. Well, that's what Uzziah thought, right? And long story short, God struck him with leprosy, and he was a leper until the day he died. I mean, one of the most graphic, like, swings in a biography in the Old Testament. So, the priests were appointed. We, we don't presume anything on ourselves. We do what God says. We follow God, right? I don't presume to be in some, some role that God would have for somebody else right? Because if God has a role for you, and I presume that that's my role, or I I act in that capacity, I steal that from you. Does that make sense? And how much in the body of Christ do people jockey for position, right? So we don't do that. God doesn't want that. And so uh, no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ, verse 5, did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And he, as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now this is uh, a little bit tough, okay? Everybody okay? We're going we're gonna to go through something a little bit difficult here, all right? Everybody got your difficult brain on? Okay, good, good. All ignores those that said no. Uh, so... Basically, what the writer here is saying is, yeah, there's a line of priests according to Levi through the, through the line of Aaron, but there's another priesthood that is kind of obscure, but we know it's validated. If you turn back to Psalm 110, 
When you're there, say there. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So it's God the Father clearly talking to God the Son, the Messiah. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. So this is clearly God the Father speaking to God the Son, as we read about in Hebrews chapter 1, God the Father speaking to, G, to God the Son, Jesus, uh, a messianic psalm. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, what? According to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. They, he shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink the brook of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. So, the Lord will have to fight a lot of battles and uh, a lot of victory will be had, but clearly this is a reference to the, uh, to the Messiah. Turn back to Genesis chapter 14. Starting in verse 14. So chapter 14, verse 14. The story here is Abraham and his nephew Lot have separated. Uh, Lot now lives in the land of Sodom because of his selfish decisions. And Lot has been, found himself in the middle of a skirmish between a bunch of different kings, a group of kings on one side, and a group of kings on the other side. And uh, Lot found himself in the middle of all that and was taken captive. Genesis 14, 14. Now when Abram, his name was Abram at the time, heard that his brother was taken captive, again, brother is a generic reference to relative, referencing to Lot, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Dan would have been way up in the northern part of Israel. He divided his forces against them by night and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to him to meet him in the valley of Shavu, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Kedolomer and the kings who were with him. Then, so Abraham, so catch this, Lot has been carried captive. There's a bunch of kings over here, a bunch of kings over here, lots in the middle of them. And Abraham goes and basically fights off who he needs to fight off so he can rescue Lot. Okay? So he rescues Lot and he's coming back, uh, coming back home. And then verse 18, then Melchizedek, this mysterious guy, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now notice here, he was the priest of God most high. Now, keep in mind, the Old Testament law has not been given yet. Remember I said the priests were descendants of Aaron through the, uh, descendants of Levi through the line of Aaron? Levi hadn't even been born yet. Okay, we're talking about Levi's great-grandfather. So Levi hasn't even been born yet. But here we got a guy, a different guy, before Levi, named Melchizedek. And he is, according to the Lord, priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham, 
Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. And so uh, the writer of Hebrews will explain it later on in the book, but uh, he makes kind of a point that the greater bless, whenever there's a blessing given, the greater blesses the lesser, right? Like dad always pays for lunch, right? When my dad came to town when he was still alive, right? It didn't matter how much money I had in my pocket, how much money dad had in his pocket, dad buys lunch, right? Brian knows that, right? Dad buys lunch, okay? It always works that way. And the, it, it, the greater, the writer of the Hebrews says, not greater in terms of value or anything like that, but blesses the lesser. And so the point is, this Melchizedek, he's blessing Abram. He's greater than Abram, the father of the Jews. Now, if you're a Jewish Christian in the first century, that gets your attention. Whoa, this guy Melchizedek, he's greater than our father Abraham, right? And Abraham confirms it by giving him a tithe, right? The, he gives a tithe to Melchizedek because Melchizedek's greater. So anyway, that's probably more Melchizedek than you want to know, but that's Melchizedek, okay? And again, speaking from the Eastern mindset, we're going to read more about Melchizedek in chapter 7. So if you hold on to all that, uh, you'll hear more about Melchizedek in chapter 7. But the idea here is that there's a priesthood that existed before the time of Levi and Aaron, and that is the priesthood of Melchizedek. And this Melchizedek is kind of a mysterious guy. We'll read more about him later. But the point is there's a priesthood that's distinct from that one, and Jesus is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 7 who in the days of his flesh when he'd offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, that's Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, so this is a reference to Jesus praying to God, uh, you know, vehement cries and tears to him, to God, who was able to save him from death. But notice this, Jesus learned obedience. Is that curious anybody? Was Jesus ever disobedient? No. But can I tell you this? There's a principle here. How did he learn it? He learned what it felt like. He learned the experience of walking in obedience. Now, he already knew obedience, and he already was obedient, right? But he, need, he experienced that death on the cross. And in so doing, he learned experientially the, the, what, it, what, it, what it is, even though he knew it and all that, he's God, and you know, that's all bigger than our brains. But there's a principle here where we learn obedience by experiencing it. Okay? And if it can be said of Jesus that he learned obedience, then it should be said of us that we can learn obedience. Right? Not that we're perfect like him, but that as we walk in obedience, we know what it feels like. We should know what obedience feels like. We should know what it feels like to walk in obedience and have God bless us accordingly. We should know what that means. And then the next time when we face an integrity decision, we should know what that implies. Right? What are the implications of me making this decision or this decision? And it's bigger than just that decision, let me just tell you that. It's always bigger than just that decision. 
So verse 9, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That includes us. Called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain. You can attest that that's hard to explain. And have become, you become, since you become dull of hearing. Now you all aren't dull of hearing, right? It's just hard for me to explain. So if you misunderstand anything about Melchizedek, it's because of my explanation. It's not because you're dull of hearing. But now as for these guys, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. And so these guys, they were stuck in the first principles of the oracles of God. Why? Because they hadn't mixed the word of God with faithful obedience. You know, you expect a baby to drink milk. Fair enough? But at some point, you expect people to be able to tolerate solid food. And that's the simple example. We need to be people who tolerate solid food, right? And just as, this, as the Word of God is what ministers to, our spirit, to our, our spirit, right, we need to experience that solid food feeding so that we can move on from the basic principles of the or the first principles of the oracles of God for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness for he is a babe but solid food belongs to those who are of full age and that is by those by who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil again back to the very beginning we're talking about the the divergence between biblical Christianity and cultural norm, right? With fence-straddling Christianity somewhere in the middle there, right? We need to be people who handle solid food. We need to be people who handle solid food. The people who are stuck on the milk of the word, as it's described in here, I mean, that's not my condescending word, that's, that's the word of God. If we choose to be stuck on the milk of the word, then I think more and more, I, I think we'll just have tremendous difficulty navigating the issues of this life. What if we live today as if we really believed that God's word was living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And what if we believe today that really in order to navigate this Christian life, we got to be people where it says solid food belongs to those who are of full age. We have to have that level of maturity in order to navigate this challenge. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. We got to know what it tastes like to walk in righteousness. We got to know what it tastes like to know the Word of God and experience obedience in the Word of God. We need to know what that tastes like. Can I tell you this? It tastes great. It tastes great. God wants us to live victoriously in promised land Christianity. He does all the work, 
but we have to diligently enter that rest. And the way we get there is by his word, according to the power of the Holy Spirit, who allows us the strength to live out that word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is living and powerful and that we have it at our feet. We have it in our laps. We have it at our disposal so much that we tend to take it for granted. And so, Lord, help us never to do that. Help us to regard your word for what it is, living and powerful, supernaturally able to pierce to the depths of our spirit. Lord, help us to be those people who walk accordingly, who are able to make the hard decisions to walk accordingly because we know that fellowship with you is worth it all. Lord, help us to be compassionate to those uh, who choose to compromise. Help us to be compassionate examples of an alternative way of living, different than compromise. Help us not to neglect so great a salvation as you have made for us. In Jesus' name, amen.